This episode of Binder Podcast is funded in part by South Carolina Humanities, a state program of the National Endowment for the Humanities. This episode is also funded in part by the South Carolina Arts Commission, which receives support from the National Endowment for the Arts. Enjoy the show. So I am Sharon Simmers-Norton, the Assistant Curator at the Native American Studies Center. I'm a Catawba citizen, and I live right off of the reservation. One of the funny things that I can say when people come in and they'll see Native Americans here, they're like, oh, you know, I didn't know you guys were still alive. Or there's a picture of Becky on the wall with a basket on her finger. So people come in, they'll see her picture on the wall, and then they see her up front, and they're like, oh, there's still Catawbas that are living? You know, that they're in the museum, and so that's kind of comical. So I call myself a graham cracker because I'm Catawba, obviously. My mom's Caucasian. I grew up with the Caucasian family. Did not make my way back to the reservation until I was 18, and that's when I took a big interest and just started researching and, and learning and wanting to know more about where I came from. I've learned a lot about genealogy, the timeline that you guys are displaying at the museum. I helped Alex kind of proofread and get the actual dates of people, and I learned while researching. There were connections that I had no idea were even there. You'd be surprised how much I have learned working here about my own people, so it's been very interesting. Welcome to Binder. I'm Drew Barron. Hey y'all, producer Drew here. I'm feeling a little like Willie Nelson today because I'm on the road again. Today, I am in what I've heard is pronounced Lancaster, but I always call it Lancaster. I am lucky to be joined by... Stephen Criswell, he's the director of Native American Studies at USC Lancaster, and we are here at the Native American Studies Center, right in the heart of downtown. And this is my second trip here, which is quite exciting, uh, but even more exciting that I get to sit in front of Stephen and talk to him. How you doing, Stephen? I'm doing well, thank you. Welcome to Lancaster. <laughs> oh, so I did. So I did say Ray the first time. Yeah, pretty close. Pretty close. <laughs> you want as few syllables as possible. Lancaster. Uh, so thank you so much for having us. Uh, it's great to be back here, um, and to learn a little bit more about what y'all do. Can you tell me a little bit about the Native American Study Center and kind of how long y'all have been here and what you do here? Yeah, well, we've been here uh, just a little over 10 years. We celebrated our 10th anniversary back in uh, October of 22. Our focus tends to be on the art and history and culture of the Catawba Nation, given that they're the closest group to us and they're the uh, only federally recognized group in the state. We started because we received a archive from a fellow named Tom Bloomer. Tom Bloomer was not a historian by training. He was an old English scholar by training. But when he was in grad school at USC, he took an interest in uh, the Catawba Nation, Catawba Indians, and the Catawba Potters, and started collecting materials and started buying pottery. And he amassed a, a compilation of materials from far and wide on the, on the Catawba Indians. And he donated that to our uh, library. The former dean, John Catalano, wanted to develop some sort of programming around this archive. And eventually that led to us acquiring 
pottery, through grants and donations, and the work of a local figure here in Lancaster, the late uh, D. Lindsay Pettis. Once the center opened, it became a place for us to exhibit the pottery. The building that we were, we were in was once a uh, department store, and it's had a, n a number of, of different uh, businesses in and out of here. But the city of Lancaster put, a, I think, a million dollars into renovating this building. Um, it's become just a really wonderful space for us, but I think also for downtown and for Lancaster in general. It does seem like in the past 10 years, there's been a lot of development and, and a lot of positive changes in the city of, of Lancaster. And I, I like to think that we, we've been part of that. Yeah, we're kind of kindred spirits because the CMA is also part of an old Macy's. Uh, that's kind of a South Carolina thing. We, we take department stores and then we make them into culture and art centers. Well, they, they live on. And that, that's good. And anything that helps small southern downtowns. I mean, I, I'm I'm all for that. And especially in the South. And we need it in the South. I, we really do. We do. We do. Uh, but a moment ago, you mentioned something that I think is a key distinction of the Catawba versus other uh tribes here in the state, and that's that they're federally recognized. Can you talk to me a little bit about what that actually means? Yeah, it's difficult to be a federally recognized tribe without having a reservation or, or in the case of the Cherokee, a boundary, an area of land that has been set aside uh, specifically for that nation. The Catawbas actually established a reservation of sorts before the establishment of the, of the United States government. They made treaties with the British and sort of guaranteed to begin with a very large area of land. And of course, over the years, it was chipped away and chipped away by encroachment and, and colonial settlement to the point where it was a you know, fairly small, by comparison, area of land. And actually, in the, in the 50s, the Catawbas lost their federal recognition. It was a project, uh, a federal project where a number of tribes were being taken off the federally recognized roles. If we want to attribute positive goals to this program, I think the idea was that, well, Native people can assimilate into the larger culture. They can move into cities and get jobs and all that sort of thing. And of course, that couldn't happen. The, the Jim Crow laws that were in effect for African-Americans in the South were in effect for Native Americans as well. Right. And, you know, Catawbas couldn't work in the textile mills in this area for a long time. So that, that plan didn't go through. And, and the Catawba realized you know, that they had lost something very important. And Really starting in the 70s, they, they reorganized and began pushing for re-recognition. And, and they'd seen the success um, of a few groups in the Northeast. And so by, uh, by 90, 93, Congressman Spratt, the Clinton administration, and the Catawba Nation reached a, a settlement where the Catawbas were re-recognized and, and slowly returned to their federal, uh, federal recognition status, which gives them some better access to to BIA resources and, and some other federal programs. I mean, it's nothing fantastic, but it's 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 better than nothing. Yeah, I mean, I can remember uh, coming here before, and you were talking to us uh, about just kind of the overall size of the Catawba Nation. Previously, I understand that it's dwindled quite a bit from where we started. Yeah. But can you can you give me a little bit of background to kind of where we were and where we are today? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, you know, it's it's. I, I don't know a lot about prehistory. That's 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 not my area, but it appears that you know there were quite a few villages, and these villages might have been unified under a larger chieftain at different times. We know that there were people who we now call Catawba in this part of the of the country along the the river that bears their name, who were making pottery five, six, seven thousand years ago, and have continuously made that pottery. There's always been a Catawba making pottery. And so we know that they've been here at least that long. 
when we have the first records, these come from the uh, Spanish explorers who came through. And if, if you're like me, you know, in fifth grade, eighth grade, whatever, uh, you know, you learn the explorer paths and you learn the horrible things sometimes that they did and the horrible things that happened to them sometimes. But Hernando de Soto, you might remember, came through this area and encountered a people who we, we think were the, the Catawba or the predecessors to the Catawba. Juan Pardo, the explorer, followed through after DeSoto a few years. Uh, his chronicler describes a people um, who call themselves the, he writes it as, I think, YSA, but it's the, it's the Catawba name for themselves, I-S-W-A, Iswa, or Iswa. And I'm, I'm pronouncing it wrong because I'm not a Catawba speaker, <laughs> but uh, 150 years or so after the Spanish explorers came through, uh, the Englishman John Lawson came through and described the Catawbas as a powerful nation you know, with many, many warriors. While a number of the area, the non-Catawba tribes were dwindling in number because of disease and, and uh, settlement and colonial encroachment, the Catawbas became sort of a, a sanctuary or refuge for many of these tribes. And so a lot of the tribes that we only know of, or we talk about now in terms of, of river names or, or area names, the Waxalls, for example, or Sheral, became part of the Catawba nation um, slowly over time, which, which helped it grow. But then in um, 1759, smallpox came through and wiped out nearly half of the Catawba and never really recovered uh, from that, that devastation. And along with the loss of land and the, the loss of, of access to, to their resources, it pushed the nation down to a very, very small number. But that's the thing about, uh, the, about the Catawba is the tenacity. There regularly have been regularly um, explorers and visitors through the area and even into Modern day, you have outsiders coming in saying, oh, this isn't going to last much longer. Yeah. <laughs> These people are not going to be around much longer. This nation as a, as a, a national identity, as a cultural identity is not going to be here. The pottery tradition is going to end. As I always tell my students, the, the folks who said that, they're long gone. Because <laughs> 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 are still here, though. I, it's, yeah, I think uh, a moment ago, you kind of mentioned uh, being in fifth grade and yeah. like learning about the explorers. And I is similar for me, right? Yeah. Interestingly, though, I was part, I was a product of the South Carolina education system. And not once did I learn anything about the Catawba, uh, during my time. And, you know, I grew up in the low country. We have our own kind of history there as well, but it just strikes me as like an incredible oversight that we don't yeah. talk about this in school. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll do you one better. I, I, I'm a product of the North Carolina school system and grew up. 30 minutes away, perhaps, from the Catawba Nation. I, I grew up on land that was once held by the Catawba. Wow. Um, you know, the South Fork of the Catawba River was right down the road from, from where I lived. And, and we learned, I would say nothing about the Catawba. My only experience, I mean, you about the Cherokee, uh, and I'd been to Cherokee, you know, as a kid and just on family vacation. But, you know, in reflecting on that, I think, you know, the, the, the answer, the question is why, why didn't, why weren't we taught this? Hmm. And I think the answer is racism. I mean, it's just, it's basically, White big man culture is, is historically what we've learned, right? We've learned Washington and Jefferson and, you know, all of these guys. And particularly when we look at the South, generally we're taught a lot about Euro, Euro-American culture, a little bit about African-American culture. It's gotten better in recent years and almost nothing about Native American culture. And when we talk about race and ethnic relations in the South, it's almost always black and white. You know, if you look at the history of the Catawba Nation and, and many of the native tribes in, in the state, there's a sort of constant negotiation uh, having to do with race and ethnicity, trying to find a place, you know, and, how, and how, where do you go to school when the schools are segregated mm. to African-American schools or Euro-American schools? You know, so you have to create your own schools, which is what the Catawba did, which is what a lot of 
the tribes have done over the years. We sometimes think of native people as being invisible. They're not invisible. We're just not looking. And or or we're looking, but they're they're not looking like we want them to, right? We want them to be on horseback, uh, leather and feathers and whatnot. And if they're you know driving a Kia and, <laughs> and working at a, an office, well, that just isn't native enough for us. Uh, yeah. But I think I think that's a really good point because yeah. like this is not a culture that was; it's a culture that is, yes. and it's folks that live in our contemporary environment and have to live their lives like all of us do. Yeah. You know, the Catawba, I often tell people, the Catawba I know are, are 100% native and 100% Southern and 100% American and 100% modern. And it's very unfair to try to uh, force the people to stay in a, in, in a time period that they're no longer in. Um, so if you're listening at home, you might have noticed that I put the cart before the horse because I just jumped in and talking about Catawba <laughs> with Stephen. I didn't even tell you why we're talking about this. <laughs> But here, let me let me step back and let you know that at the Columbia Museum of Art right now, we have an exhibition called Resurgence and Renaissance, Art of the Catawba Nation since 1973. There's a reason that it's since 1973, and we're about to get to that here in just one second. But I just wanted you to know that our friends here at the Native American Studies Center helped us curate this exhibition, and that is why we're talking to them today. Um, let's talk a little bit about pre-1973. So, Historically, this is not the first time the Columbia Museum of Art has actually shown Catawba pottery. Can you talk to me a little bit about who Stephen Baker was and a little bit about the 1973 exhibition? Yeah, yeah. And, and what's significant about that 73 exhibit is it was, if not the first, one of the first times, I think the first time that the Catawba pottery was presented in an art context. The pottery tradition, as I said, goes back thousands of years. The pots were utilitarian uh, for utilitarian purposes. They were storage containers, water vessels, that sort of thing. Uh, they were they were traded with uh, other native peoples. When colonists arrived, Catawba potters began trading their pottery with colonists as well. It, it's a fascinating thing. To, you can watch the the evolution or the changes in the forms of Catawba pottery, and a lot of times it seems like they're they're responding to the market. When the English uh, settlers arrived. Catawba potters start making teapots and cups and plates. And it's like, well, this is what they want. And then ashtrays, right? Ashtrays are not a traditional native form. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very modern. So the, the pottery hadn't quite been recognized as an art form. It was sort of a native craft, I guess. And Steve Baker, who at the time in the early 70s was, I believe, grad student in history at USC. And he became interested in Catawba pottery and, and Catawba traditions. He himself uh, was worried that the tradition would die. And he, he writes about that in the in the program for the original 1973 exhibit, that he wanted to put together an exhibit of this pottery to make folks aware of it, to maybe help it survive for a few more years. Hmm. Right. So that's, again, 50 years ago. So, so he, he selected or maybe they volunteered, but there were four women, Sarah Ayers, Doris Blue, Georgia Harris, Arzada Sanders. And they contributed work and he borrowed pieces from some of the area museums and, and natural history museums, particularly, and put together this exhibit in 1973 of these these four female artists. And, and these women were, were important in a number of ways. I mean, Sarah Ayers has uh, one of her pots is in the White House Library. Georgia Harris was a National Heritage Award winner and award the, the National Endowment for the Arts gives every year. One of only, I think, four South Carolinians. Yeah, it's not many. Uh, no, it's yeah. a, a drink small. Philip Simmons, the blacksmith, and, uh, uh, Mary Jackson, Mary Jackson, yeah. the uh, basket basket weaver, weaver and and uh, 
MacArthur Genius Award winner as well. So, so this is this is the company of geniuses, I guess. Um, but but each of these women, and if you look at the potters who are working today, you can draw a direct line. I mean, these these women learned from their mothers, their grandmothers, their aunts, and, and so forth. And they taught their daughters and their granddaughters, but they also taught their nephews and their sons and their grandsons. So that if you follow this lineage. You know, Georgia Harris is the grandmother of Chief Bill Harris, the current chief of the, the Catawba Nation. And there's a wonderful part of the exhibit in Columbia where the artist Alex Osborne has put together a timeline to show these connections. And it's, it's vast and it weaves in and out, but it, it just shows you how vibrant uh, and alive this tradition is. And, and in some ways, that exhibit, I think the, the success of it began a, a sort of renaissance among the potters because the, the number of potters was small. But it began to grow and the, the South Carolina Arts Commission took an interest in, in supporting the tradition. The tribe uh, worked uh, more at, at taking care of the tradition. The establishment of the Catawba Cultural Center and the Catawba Cultural Preservation Project helped it to grow. And now, you know, we were seeing a lot more potters than we saw back then. And, and what's really exciting is there, you're starting to see younger potters. Uh, you're seeing, seeing uh, young people taking up this tradition and carrying it on. Uh, and ensuring that that Steve Baker and all of those who came before him <laughs> said that this tradition would die were were terribly terribly wrong. Um, so this exhibition is made, you know, mostly from your collection uh, here at the Native American Studies Center, not your personal collection. No, no. I, I haven't seen your personal collection. I don't know what it looks like. You know, it's it's fairly small. I, I started buying pottery, and then one day I realized I can just go to work and look at all the pottery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I bought sweetgrass baskets instead. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> So when y'all were planning this, uh, because you worked directly with uh, Jackie Adams, who anyone listening has heard her voice on here many, many times, you worked directly with her and kind of helped guide the process of what was going to be in this exhibition and why. Can you talk to me a little bit about what was going through you and Brittany and everyone's minds when you were working on this? Yeah. And I should mention, uh, Brittany uh, Taylor Driggers, our um, professor of art here at USC Lancaster and our curator of collections and director of galleries. Was the one who who did the work. She and Sharon Norton, her assistant. And a year ago this week, we lost our original archivist, uh, Brent Berg. And Brent was um, one of the the founders of the Native American Studies Center, along with a few of us here, and built the only single archive devoted to Native Americans in South Carolina. He started a Lunch and Learn series. He did a did a lot of great work here. And shortly after we both were hired, probably going back to maybe 2006, 2007, Brent found out about this exhibit. I had no knowledge of it. And, and Brent was reading up on it and he, and he told me about it. And we started talking and he said, yeah, wouldn't it be great if we did an anniversary exhibit? And we talked about it and it didn't really go anywhere. And it started, I think, as a 35th anniversary and then a 40th anniversary, <laughs> a 45th anniversary. And then uh, when, a couple of years ago, I guess, uh, he, he got an email from, uh, from someone at the Columbia Museum of Art and started this conversation. And that really started, started the wheels turning. And the, the exhibit itself is dedicated to, uh, to Brent Bergen, and we, we really appreciate that. Early on, we wanted to make sure we involved the Catawba. And so we reached out to Sharon, who works with us, and Becky Garris, who uh, is an expert on the Catawba language. Um, we reached out to the Catawba Cultural Center just to let them know what we were doing and see what input they, they might have. And, you know, we wanted to tell the story of what happened after 1973 artistically so that the story is about the pottery and the potters who've come along since. Well, it's about that first four, their contemporaries. But then the next generation, the next generation, and probably even the next generation after that. And we, we realized very early on that we had to expand this out beyond pottery, that we needed to talk about art in general. 
And so we knew we wanted to include more contemporary uh, artistry. We wanted to include other genres of art, quilts and so forth. There's photography that's part of the exhibit. So we wanted to sort of, again, reinforce that vibrancy of Catawba culture and the the survival, not just survival. I mean, survival, I think, demeans to some degree of, of what has happened with it. It's not, it didn't just, it hasn't survived. It's grown, it's blossomed, it's spread, it's, it's developed. It is a living tradition with emphasis both on tradition and living. Tanake, my name is Alex Osborne. I am a Kataba photographer, uh, designer, and artist, and I'm here on the Binder podcast. Welcome to the show, Alex. Hello. <laughs> that was the weirdest <laughs> hello I think it could have ever I, said. No, I mean, it really defines your personality right out of the gate. <laughs> yeah, hello. That, that tracks. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's really great to have you on the show. Uh, we at the museum have all been big fans, big Alex Osborne fans. Not only are you a great contemporary artist and a Catawba person yourself, but you just are a really amicable guy. Like you're really easy to talk to. You always have a smile on your face. You just like you seem like you just like exude like a positive energy. Please uh, ask my boyfriend. <laughs> he, uh, we 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 joke that I'm a cat, so he you know he would certainly agree with you. I'm sure in many cases, but he's definitely seen a lot of like, grumpy sides of me that um, sometimes are a lot more entertaining. <laughs> Welcome to the Binder Feline Podcast, where Correct. we talk only cats. Uh, no, we're actually on the regular Binder Podcast where we talk only art, and today we're here to talk about art. And not only any art, but the art from the show that we were just talking about in the last interview. So I don't need to repeat myself. But I guess what I wanted to say is you're in the show. Not only are you a contemporary artist who doesn't work in ceramics, but you're in the show. How did you get in the show? It's kind of like (laughs) artception, if you think about it, I guess. Because I feel like I have to go way back to explain how I got here. Um, But suffice it to say that I have started to play with you know, contemporary media as opposed to ceramic medias that we're, that we're known for, that kind of lends itself to being an interesting feature or like development in Kataba artwork. And I'm not alone. There's other people that have played with it too, but I've been given a lot of really good opportunities, which brings me to the show. Back in 2021, I was the first contemporary artist in residence for the Native American Studies Center at USC Lancaster. And that actually had a pretty good impact on like developing my style as an artist and allowed me some time to really carve out features of my work and things like that. Afterwards, they liked me enough that they were like, hey, you want to come work with us? (laughs) (laughs) So um, they decided to keep me around a little bit. And that was really, really nice. But that led me to work with Brittany Taylor Driggers, who was really instrumental in putting together the gallery. And what I do for my quote unquote day job is actually environmental graphics. So that lends itself to something like an exhibition where you have vinyls on the wall. You're kind of enveloped in this space of artwork. So I kind of split that or compartmentalized that into my head. And in the sense that, like, I was there to support it from, you know, the presenter's <laughs> angle, 
But then also as an artist. Yeah. I mean, that seems like a hard line to toe, right? Because like you, you're kind of existing in both realms at the same time. It's, it's interesting, but I'm used to it. <laughs> I, I've, I feel like I've always kind of tried to explain to people that I exist in a couple of different worlds simultaneously. And I think that that really ends up boiling down to a conversation around like intersectionality with identities and things like that. Um, which we can get into or not, <laughs> you know, but it's it's um, there's there's definitely layers to the work that I do in terms of opportunity and self-direction and also like collaboration. I think that all of those led me to be able to be both in the gallery and in the gallery. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, let's get into it. That's what I'm here to talk about. Like, <laughs> it seems like uh, where you are, it does like kind of toe that line in this like intersectional space. You're existing as a contemporary person, as your own individual person but you also have this like lineage of a culture that goes back thousands and thousands and thousands of years and the weight involved in that i was speaking earlier before we were on mic about how i my my background is like a bunch of folks that moved here from the french side of canada um and i don't really know any of my history you know so i can't imagine living a life where you just are so aware of like all of this history and that you have like all of this family that constantly reminds you of your history where do you stand with that? Like, how do you feel about that personally? There's been, uh, I really hate the term journey with things like this, <laughs> just because I feel like it's so cliche. But I think that that's probably, you know, maybe process is a better word mm. of like self-discovery. And with my artist in residence a couple of years ago, it kind of gave me time to think about some of the, like how I frame some of those conversations. I think that on the one hand, it got me thinking about identity, both as like a member of the LGBTQIA plus community and then also being Kataba and then also, you know, um, having heritage from my mom who is not Kataba, <laughs> you know, and I want to respect that, too. So, like, how do I combine all of these things? What I realized during my artists in residency was that, like, the work that I do now, while it's not, quote unquote, traditional. It is something that I want to reference the art of my ancestors or the practices of my ancestors. That's really unique to me in terms of like, I'm the only person that can really do that for myself. The art that other people make based off of that is going to look completely different. You know, I was fortunate enough to work for our tribal government, which also informed, they gave me the, the space to explore like, well, what does this look like in the 21st century? You know, you, you talk about 6,000 years of artwork or of really something that became artwork is, I think, is a better way to put it. And I think that that just keeps evolving. You know, we are here now and oftentimes, and I say it all the time at the, at the study center, is just that like we've been around for 6,000 years, but we also exist in the present. And, you know, I want my work to not only reference the work of my ancestors and hopefully invite people to learn more, but I want to show that it's not old. <laughs> you know, like it, it is old in the sense that it's been around a long time, but it's not old in the sense like we're here today. We're members of society today. We are, you know, I as a person 
living and experiencing multiple intersectional <laughs> like identities that uh is something that is here for now not necessarily something that is just an old story you might read in a textbook no i totally agree and like that's what i think is really interesting about your work is that you do blend that right you are pulling from these like histories but then you are taking them into the 21st century this is like your work is very 2023 it's kind of become my goal you know what I mean? Like, how do I show what a Catawba person looks like today? Because if you look at the work of my great great grandmother, part of it was about survival. You know, she was selling pottery at Winthrop University to help feed her family. And there was a whole family affair. You know, there's a lot of layers to that. But that became something that now we talk about that represents her then. What does that look like today? And I'm fortunate to have opportunities and the privilege to exhibit my work how I want to. I think that's kind of where I come back to like honoring my ancestors too, because there was so much that they went through over the past, you know, century or in longer, you know, the work that I do can both respect them, I think. And also I hope talk about things that we experience today too. So that comes back to the LGBT plus representation. That comes back to um, representing womanhood in a very like, you know, visually in your face kind of way. Um, and I'm, I try to be careful with that because I I don't identify as a woman. Right. But I just think that like, you know, we were matriarchal. We're a matriarchal tribe. And so like the ancestry of our people is passed from mother to mother or, you know, mother to child and so on and so forth. And women have always been revered as people who frankly know what they're talking about (laughs) and um there's a little bit of like an honor that i can't really describe in the tribe to where we look to women for that guidance there there's a level of respect that you can't really see anywhere else we'll be right back with more from alex after the break and later if you used the Catawba alphabet instead of saying Becky, you would say Becky Garris after this. Hey, y'all, you know who it is. Just thought you might like to know there's more coming soon. You know, more. What? You keep acting like you don't know what I mean. Come on. I'm talking about more exhibitions, more classes, more programs, more concerts, more tours, more art, more podcasts. There's always more at the CMA. See? More. And members get even more than that. More mission, more parties, more benefits than I can name in this ad. In fact, it might be easier if you just go see for yourself. Because if I have to list how much more there is, we'll be here all day. You can see more for yourself on our website, www.columbiamuseum.org. And now, for more of the show. Another part of your work that is featured in the show and has its own sort of visual storytelling is your photography. I heard you mention the other day that you kind of saw your photographic practice almost like a documentarian's practice. Can you talk to me a little bit about some of the photos that are in the show and also sort of how you approach all that? 
So two things. One, I'm a designer by day. And I think something that separates my work as a designer and my work as an artist is that the work that I make as an artist, I always want to tell a story. Mm. There's a story that I want to tell from me. It might be, you know, inspired by something or someone or what have you, but like, that's one of the big differences, I think, between art and design, which was really interesting in the CDL podcast. Um, go back and listen to that. On, uh, <laughs> it was really good. Uh, backlogs of the Binder podcast. <laughs> um, shameless plug. But I had a conversation recently with my um, my boss, uh, actually, and we were talking about how my photographs are featured in the gallery. And something that we talked about is the method that we printed them. Because when it comes to photographs or photographers, a lot of times we're really picky about how it's presented, you know, digital or print media, you know, and, and I started on film. So, like, I can totally appreciate the finer details of, like, <laughs> here's your photo and how it's going to be presented. It matters. Right. And, you know, then you come into a gallery or an academic space and you have to talk about archiving and preservation and things like that. Well, for the photos in the gallery, we decided to actually print them on fabric. Mm -hmm. It is a sublimated printing process that goes on fabric and it's called a silicone edge graphic. So it has a little silicone clip that goes into the frame and the fabric just stretches and you have what is usually a much more manageable method of displaying a very large image. And what dawned on me in this conversation was that this was a little bit different because the photo itself wasn't the point of the artwork. The point of the photo was actually the subject matter. And so in each of these photos, each one of them were former artists in residence for the Native American Studies Center. And they're all elders that I look up to artistically and have known within the community for a long time ever since I was knee-high to a grasshopper or whatever they say. And so, like, each of these photos, to me, <laughs> this sounds very existential, but they documented the existence of our people. They documented the people that have come before us and, like, guided us in our creativity in some ways. And each of them continue to have a very unique impact on what our tribe looks like because i think that, like there's an element of aesthetic that comes with our work you know whether we like it or not and so each one of them you know has different mannerisms has different practices has different skills has different knowledge and wisdom and so it was really interesting to me with each one of the photos that because i actually didn't choose those that were curated by Brittany taylor triggers it was curious that she chose the images that she did because of like the impactfulness of them. But when it all comes down to it, the point of it wasn't necessarily the photo itself. And I think that there's amazing things to be said about skill with photo and, you know, all of that. But it was actually to tell a story mm -hmm. of what was in the photo as opposed to preserving this beautiful <laughs> Ansel Adams, <laughs> style, you know, style creative piece. You know, the creative piece was documenting the story of someone within the tribe right and i think that usually is where that line is right yep. like I, I tell people people try to argue that a lot of what i'm doing is art all the time and i'm like no it's i'm documenting a thing somebody else made the art I, I i like i'm here to make it accessible i think about this all the time because i think that a sometimes it doesn't feel like we're making art right. you know a lot of times like especially with photography 
that storytelling piece really comes forward a lot stronger because I'm trying to preserve a story, you know, and we have only ever really had that orally, you know, in the tribe before, you know, first contact before, you know, technology, whatever, you know, whatever. I say first contact and I immediately think of Star Trek. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, first contact with European settlers and things like that. I could ramble about that for hours. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I think this actually transitions really well to something else I wanted to talk to you about, which is just kind of that idea of the traditional, right? Like, I think a lot of the art, especially the ceramic pieces in the show, they could be defined in a lot of ways, at least some of them as being traditional, as opposed to a lot of your work, which is very clearly very contemporary, right? But that's a weird, that's a weird space to live in. Like this idea of like, what is traditional versus what isn't? Especially when it comes to this, because I've heard a lot of definitions on what <laughs> makes something traditional katabar, and there there are some consistencies, but it seems as though there's a lot of uh, wiggle room in there. So I, can you talk to me about your feelings about that? I have a favorite story on this subject. <laughs> um, so I was I was working for our tribal government, and we wanted to create like some T-shirts or you know some swag for our cultural center and I put a lot of work into designing a series of four t-shirts. One of my favorite projects was that I got to create a logo for the Catawba Cultural Center. And so each one of these t-shirts, like the colorway was based off of a portion of this logo. And each one had like a different symbol that was like culturally relevant to, you know, what was used in the logo and the branding and also like, you know, historically we did a Facebook live to just promote this. Hey, we have this now. And one of the first comments on it was that doesn't look very Kataba to me. (laughs) (laughs) And like, that was one of my like very early lessons in like the artwork that I do does not match tradition per se, which I find interesting because, you know, I put in research and like hours and days of like trying to figure out, How do we make this look like something that should represent us in the 21st century? It made me think later about what does traditional art look like? And, you know, I had a conversation with Chief Bill Harris. Well, what is tradition? (laughs) You know, what is our traditional work and things like that? And um, he said a really interesting thing one day where he said, well, when does a tradition start? Hmm. And that really got me thinking because, you know, our pottery has been around for 6,000 years. And that's a tradition. But when did that start? Like who sat down one day and was like, you know, I'm going to put this clay into a fire and see what happens. Or maybe it was an accident. You know, I like to like as a thought exercise, just like think about, well, who did that first and why? Right. And tradition informs a lot of what I do, but it doesn't dictate whether or not I do it because... You know, not only am I a fan of like challenging the the status quo per se, I think that it's important to recognize that a lot of these things all have their place, you know, and I don't mean that in a condescending way either, but our traditional work is phenomenal because it has kept our culture alive. It has supported us. It's literally like allowed us to survive. Yeah. And things won't be new forever, but I still think that it's important to keep that in mind when I'm creating something new, <laughs> right? you know, like what's the other purpose that drives what I create? And that is 
identity that's, you know, preserving our culture through documentation or through like self-expression. There's just a whole lot of other things besides tradition that necessarily inform my choice to make an art, make an art, make art. <laughs> However, you might phrase that. <laughs> make an art. No, I mean, that's that's a good point. And you never know what traditions you might be starting. Right. It is a really nebulous thing. Like you think about like a family tradition. Right. And like, how did that get started? And when did that become like a tradition? Did you have to do it twice? Did you have to do it five times? Did you have to do it a hundred times? Out of all of that, my brain focused on the word nebulous. I love that word. <laughs> I, I have a powerful vocabulary. Correct. It has gotten me nothing except for this job right here. Uh, <laughs> not bad, not bad. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I try, you know. Um, but I think your work is a great example of that. But there are some other artists in the show whose work borders on something that maybe could be considered more traditional, but still really like pushes those boundaries. I'm thinking of like, Caroline Saunders' work, for instance. So, Caroline's work stands out to me in particular because she, again, challenges the status quo. She challenges what is traditional. And that's particularly interesting because if you think about it, there's like a time and place element to all of this. Mm-hmm. You know, so like we for centuries were making pots and, and pottery for functional purposes. <laughs> like, Carrying water to the house. But Caroline takes a traditional practice and pushes the boundary in that she plays with form. You know, she decorates her pottery with different animals and effigies that inspire her. And I really admire that because I think that that sort of bridges the gap a little bit. And I hope that she's not offended by me saying this. You know, she's doing a traditional practice of ours and then also having more of a contemporary element in that she's sculpting faces, um, making patterns and things like that that we didn't do, quote unquote, traditionally. Do those things look kataba to some people? I don't really know that anybody has the authority to dictate that, <laughs> you know, um, and I appreciate that she is talented and inspired enough to explore that possibility you know we historically i think just from hearsay (laughs) have been very picky about the practices of people you know i hear about some of our elders you know giving each other grief so to speak about you know well you're not supposed to do that that's not very traditional you know what i mean or like that's not how we how we've done it and throughout you know my experiences in life I kind of want to be one of those people that isn't really doing it just because we've always done it that way. Yeah. Uh, Something I've heard you bring up time and time again is kind of that idea of uh, Nomkihi and how that misnomer of calling him King Hegler has stuck around for so long and how you're trying to really reclaim that. And I think that's like a great instance of going back to tradition, going back to history and fixing the wrongs that have kind of circulated throughout time since then. Uh, and so could you tell me kind of who he was and, and where that like mis- misnomer, misnaming kind of comes from? So first of all, great job in pronouncing his name because... I practice. <laughs> um, growing up, that's something that like everybody sees is a chief's head or King Hagler head pot. It's interesting because... 
it's a pot with two heads on it. And you don't really recognize the impact of what that is. So King Hagler is the only chief that we've ever memorialized in pottery. And Chief Harris points that out as a really interesting point that I agree with, because why is it that he was the only person that we ever did that with? And I try to think about that often because I don't, I don't know. But he had such an impact as a leader for our people that people started sculpting him. You know, as you research design, a lot of times you learn stories <laughs> that go along with like why things look the way they do. And um, this was kind of one of them because I, I had heard this story before. And again, disclaimer, I'm not a historian. <laughs> um, Get out of here. Then. Someone please yeah. talk to Dr. Brooke Bauer if like they want a history lesson on some of these things. <laughs> um, and I say that respectfully. But I started looking at like, you know, what are some symbols that like represent us and everything? And I came across his actual name, which is Nopkihi. So Nopkihi was his Kataba name. <laughs> like that was his actual. And then I was like, what is this? Like, how did we get here? And from what I'm told, um, there's like two parts to this story because Hagler came to be Hagler and it was a little bit pejorative in the sense that like that man will haggle with you. Right. It wasn't a compliment, <laughs> you know? And then the other part was King because that was something that always kind of baffled me too. But when settlers first came into contact with the Kataba, they were trying to say, well, who can we speak to? Who can speak for your people? And he came forward and, you know, well, what is the title that we like can give to you? Because they were trying to find a way to like, who should talk to who? And the word that they came to know was king. And that was like the best way to describe how he could speak for our people. But that's also confusing because in cultures outside of a tribe, you think of king as like a ruler or a monarch, and that's not what he was. Right. And even a chief, you know, they're not, they are not in charge of the tribe except through the eyes of the United States government. And so they are meant to be leaders, but they also are meant to be guided by our people because we are led by general counsel. So we're actually a true democracy. But coming back to Noki, I think that he remained, at least for me, an important symbol, because if we decided to memorialize him in pottery, what does that look like now? So I wanted to see what that looked like digitally. So um, that became a prominent symbol that I use. And actually, that led to the design for the gallery title wall on display right now. Which is very striking. Like, it really catches your eye. So you walk in from the Tina Williams Brewer Galleries. And it's the first thing you see before you even get into the galleries if you're coming from four to five, um, which is really inside baseball. If you don't actually work at the museum, you probably don't know the numbers of any of the galleries, but that's where it is. And the way that you've represented it is in almost in like a painterly style, which gives it like a lot of life and makes it feel like super vibrant. The symbolism of using uh, Nokihi is like pretty prevalent and it's something that a lot of people might associate if they've seen Kataba ceramic pottery in the past. This is something that you might have seen. It's a pretty regular symbol. But there's a lot of uh, regularly used symbols. Regular listeners of the show will know we talk about snakes a lot. Ray is terrified <laughs> of snakes. So I love to bring it up as much as possible. Sorry, Ray. Yeah. Um, 
the interpretation of snakes in the Catawba culture is relatively positive, um, which really bucks the trend of like your Western, like European kind of view of like snakes. You actually have a snake tattooed on your body. I'm, I'm giving away all your secrets right now. That's fine. Yeah. Um, but uh, can you can you talk to me about kind of some of these prevalent symbols that we see in a lot of this work and some of it that appears in your work? So I'll come back to the snake uh, because I think that's a really fun symbol and it's one of my favorite ones to talk about. I would say the oldest symbol that I, speaking of tattoos, <laughs> have come across, sorry, mom, is this one on my forearm. I was on a visit to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, you know, met with an archaeology professor there, and he showed me some historic pieces because I had fairly recently started working for the Longhouse and um, was really investigating the symbolism of like, how do we translate a culture that had no writing system that didn't really have, to my knowledge, then much like visual imagery as symbols. And what could I use besides Nopkihi? You know, he was kind of an obvious one, but was there anything else that I could use to embellish and to like, you know, grow on that visual language, so to speak? And one of them that came to me was, was this tattoo. And it looks kind of like a corn stalk or a corn flower. It can also kind of be the same pattern as you would see within like the spine of a feather. To me, it has come to mean like multiple things, but the piece of pottery that he showed me with this in inscription or like marking was from 700 AD. And wow. so like I could be remembering that completely wrong, but it was the oldest piece that I had ever seen with this marking. And so that really kind of spoke to me in terms of, you know, this was something that has been around for a long time. So I wanted to use symbols like that in like 21st century mark making and in illustrations um, because that spoke to me inherently as Kataba. Another big one was the snake. And for us specifically, it's the black snake or the king snake. We would tattoo snakes on the backs of our warriors. We viewed snakes as protectors. So they're symbols of power and protection because if you tattoo them on the warrior you know <laughs> that's that's business right <laughs> um but also you know you know protecting crops they would you know hunt vermin they would also specifically the black snake and the king snake they would kill the bad snakes that would harm you i also like the idea that it like challenges the norm again mm -hmm. and so that for me at least has really become more of a symbol of kataba because it's just a little bit different. A long time ago, the ancient people said, this is how the dipping dot dot suk suk looks the way he does today. And this is also whenever I am talking to the young ones, I'll ask them to raise their hands if they do chores at home. And they'll look at me and they're not sure what chores are. <laughs> so I'll tell them, you know, do you have to make the bed? Do you have to carry out trash? Do you have to wash dishes? And then they'll say, yes. 
And I said, well, it was the same thing with these two dipping dot duck suksuks who happened to be embroilers. They were brothers. And their yaksu, the mother, every morning in spring, she would give them a basket. And they would have to go out and pick up the nuts and the berries and bring them back. And she would empty them and store them. Because back then, there was no such thing as a Walmart. And so they would keep going back and empty them and going back and taking them back and empty them. And after a while, they finally caught on. To, the faster they filled them up, the faster they would have to go back out and fill them up again. So they started slowing down. And all of a sudden, this youngest dipping dot duck started twisting and turning. And you know how you have that particular spot on your back to where in regards to how you try to dislocate your shoulder, you can't reach it. <laughs> So it's the same thing with this dipping dot duck suit. So he asked his older involver if he would scratch his back for him. And of course, big brothers being big brothers automatically said no. He said, but please, my back really itches. Will you please scratch my back? And again, he says, no. So and then he said, well, please, 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 please. And he gets higher and higher with this voice. And older brother says, okay, stop that squealing and I will scratch your back. So he starts scratching his back, and younger brother says, Curry, curry, hello, hello, that feels good. Thank you, thank you. And so, of course, big brother stopped scratching his back. And he said, Well, why did you stop scratching my back? Because the itch is still there. He said, Please, he said, Don't go to the squealing. I will scratch your back. But also because big brother didn't want to keep scratching his little brother's back. So this time he starts scratching his back, and little brother says, Curry, curry. Oh, 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 oh. It was good. That feels good. Thank you. Thank you. Big brother brings out his claws. Uh, and he just rakes them down his little brother's back. And little brother was going from, Curry, ow, ow, you're hurting me. Big brother looks at little brother's back and he says, Ah, he's sorry. I am so sorry. I put stripes on your back. And of course, little brother's so used to big brother teasing him. He said, Yeah, right. Uh huh. He said, No. I really am sorry. The stripes are really there. And he really was sorry because he knew as soon as he got back home, little brother's going to tell on him. He's going to be in trouble. But mom, they said, no, camper down to the stream and look, and you can see your reflection in the water. So little brother scraped down there and he looks in the water. And sure enough, the stripes were there. But he keeps walking back in front of the water, and each time he walks and looks at his reflection, he stands just a little bit taller. Because he thought he looked pretty cool. And so he went back and he thanked his big brother for putting the stripes on his back. And as we all know, when little brothers have something, big brothers always want it too. So big brother stomps through the ground, and he said, yeah, he said, but I don't have stripes on my back. And little brother says, well, I'll put stripes on your back for you, and that way we can both be pretty cool looking. And so little brother puts the stripes on his big brother's back, and that is to say how the Catawbas say the dipping dot duck suksuk or how the chipmunk got his stripes. And E3, the story is finished. Hey, y'all. Welcome back. Producer Drew here once again, and I have the joy of being able to sit down with Becky Garris. She is an artist, a storyteller, a pretty awesome person all around, and I am really, really lucky to have her here, be it via Zoom or any other way. 
Becky, welcome to the show. Uh, so nice to have you. Well, we agree, Drew. Good afternoon, and thank you for inviting me. So I did a little short spiel there about who you are, but why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? So uh, I know I think you pretty well covered it. I'm an artist, a storyteller, uh, but mostly a great grandma and a grandma and a mother. So. Well, I mean, I think that is actually kind of a nice little transitional moment because this episode is all about how the contemporary meets the traditional and looking at the art of the contamination, not necessarily through just a historical lens, but also where it is today. So you are a citizen of the contamination and that can mean a lot of things probably to a lot of different people. I mean, we're talking about a people that have a history that goes back over 6,000 years. What does that mean to you, though, specifically? Specifically, it brings me a lot of pride, but it also puts an added weight to my shoulders to be able to continue the traditions, make sure that they don't stop with me. Hmm. Thinking about what those 6,000 years entails for me to even be here today, considering everything that was done yeah. That people had to survive not only warfare, but diseases and just natural aging. Especially when you consider how large the contamination was, you know, and then you look at the numbers now and it's dwindled so much over time. Um, and so for you all to be able to not only be able to claim being part of that community still, but also uh, be able to hold on to some of these like traditions that date back hundreds and thousands of years, I think is like pretty incredible. Could you talk to me a little bit about uh, what we might call like traditional Catawba art and like how that compares and contrasts to what's being done today? Well, traditionally, the pottery is still made the same way it was over 6,000 years ago. We still dig our own clay. We don't use a potter's wheel nor incorporate a kiln. It's still handmade either by a pinch method or a coil method, and then it's scraped and polished with polishing stones. Some have been passed down seven generations, and I'm fortunate enough to have one that's been passed down for five generations. Wow. And so whenever I hold it, even when I'm making the pottery, the clay tells my hands what it wants to be made into. If I sit down with an idea of what I want to make myself, if the clay doesn't agree, I can't make it because <laughs> I've tried. The clay hole that we go to now, we know orally we've been going to that same spot for 450 years. Hmm. And no, we don't go there with a backhoe and a dump truck. We go over there with shovels and, and five-gallon buckets to ensure that there's clay remaining. So you remember the past, but you look out for the future. Mm. I mean, I think that's probably part of the reason that uh, this tradition has been able to go on for so long, because it's not like clay is an infinite resource, right? Like, Well, I can go buy commercial clay and I can make the same type of vessel. And yeah, a Catawba made it, but it's not tradition. The other uh, exhibition that we actually have on view is by an artist named Tina Williams Brewer. And she talks a lot about ancestral memory like when it comes to objects, right? Like, and how like it pa gets passed down through all these hands over all these years and it kind of takes on a little bit of that spirit. Do you think that that's sort of at play here? 
I think so. I think it's sort of gene memory too. Like I was commenting that I can make something the same type and being a Catawba, yeah, I can sell it as Catawba made, but not Catawba pottery. It has to be the clay to actually be the pottery. There's contemporary potters and like we have contemporary artists that aren't potters, but we all evolve. We yeah. Even though we can make the same type of vessel, the person that makes it makes it uniquely theirs by what they do to it hmm. or how, you know, we have incorporated a wedding jug that we're famous for. Well, that wasn't a traditional piece, but it's a traditional piece now because people went out west for a show and they saw it and they liked it and started making it. <laughs> I like to say, well, it, we sell what sells. <laughs> That's actually, you know what, that's that's an interesting transition because I did want to ask you about that. These traditions didn't start necessarily with the idea of selling anything, right? Like this was a more practical. Yeah, they were used vessels and I, even our cooking pots and our storage vessels, they were cone shaped. We didn't start putting flat bottoms on them until we saw the Europeans flat bottom cast on pots because it, it wasn't set in the fire to cook. It was set outside the fire so that it would rotate around the fire and it captures the heat inside. And as you're rolling it, you stir in it. I feel like I remember uh, it being mentioned that this pottery is all unglazed too, right? That's like a very traditional part of the process. We have some potters that are so fabulous at polishing them that you would think that there's a glaze painted on them and they're not. Caroline Sanders is one example I can think of, and Eric Canty, and there are others, but those two stand out in particular. And Caroline has taught many of us how to make the pottery and how to polish it, and she amazes me. I mean, you don't see polishing lines in them. You'll see every line that I put in <laughs> because they they will spend hours, if not weeks, just sitting there polishing. I don't have that much patience. <laughs> so, so if it if it polishes and it shines that's good enough that's not downplaying what i do it's just a matter of that's just my style so each potter has a style of doing the same motions but how they are satisfied with what they're doing yeah i find that really fascinating actually because it's like a, you're all y'all are of two worlds with that, right? Like you have these like kind of strict guidelines on what you deem to be traditional. But then within that, everyone has their own like take on that that is either accepted or not. I remember when we were uh, at the center and y'all were talking about we had, I think someone asked like, well, what exactly is traditional then? And I, I think the response was just like, well, if the elders say it is. <laughs> <laughs> yes. If the elders are agree with it, that's good. I watched another interview with you, and it was with a nice little young man. I, I, I think he must have been about nine or so. It's very, very endearing. But you actually had like a philosophically interesting quote towards the beginning, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. So you said that pottery and basket weaving are like in your genes, but they're also something that you didn't lean into much until you were an adult. 
Do you think this is something that we naturally start to like fall into as we get a little bit older and we're looking at things more retrospectively? Like, what was that journey like for you? Well, I married young and had children young and then eventually had two jobs at the same time, less raising children. So normally when you're younger, you don't have the time, even though you grow up around it and you see it done. And yeah, and I will use the word piddle with it. But the older you get, the more it becomes a calling and not just something to do. You can't be the one that makes it disappear. You have to make sure that it continues long after you're not here anymore. Yeah. So that you feel you really feel like there, you have like a responsibility to do this. It's not just it's not a hobby. It's not like a no, it is not a hobby. Because, yeah. no. <laughs> that really speaks to your passion about this across the board, because I know that you also have worked a lot to like preserve the Catawba language. Can you talk to me a little bit about that and uh, the efforts that you've had to make? Well, my great grandfather and great grandmother were Samuel Taylor and his Loiza Canty Blue. And his sister, Margaret, were the last fluid speakers of the language. And I'm old enough to remember them, hearing them speak. But he didn't teach it. And I think it was because, well, he was born in 1873 and died in 1959. So that was plenty of time to see what the federal government was doing about culture and language and traditions and religion to where they made it almost impossible for you to teach. And I can never understand why, even though I know the logic behind it, I still cannot understand why. Somebody can invade your country and then tell you how to live your life, even though, like I say, 6,000 years before they even knew we existed, we existed, and then make it illegal to speak your language like they are the be-all, do-all, see-all, say-all. Plus, uh, religion came a part of it, too, as far as Grandpa was concerned. But also think, personally, that he didn't teach it because he was hoping that it was going to make it easier for his children and future generations to survive. And so you think he he would have preferred that y'all just assimilate more, um, and that was one of his ways of doing that? In his mind, it was making it easier on us, but thank goodness it's gone full circle. Now, you know, everybody wants to have a... a Cherokee Indian princess as a great-grandmother. <laughs> and no disrespect to the Cherokees because, you know, we have some family members that married into the Cherokees. We also have family members that married into the Pamunkey tribe. You know, that's the one in Virginia. And also the tribe that Pocahontas came from. And I can go back lineage of seventh-generation Pamunkey as well, but... I can't go to to Pamunkey tribe and say, hey, you know, I'm a Pamunkey. <laughs> Let me join. You know, it's, it's, it's a heritage, it's a culture, it's a lineage, but it's not my culture. So we've been we've been talking a lot about lineage and heritage and where the Catawba has been. But I would love to get your take on where the Catawba is going. What do you see uh, the future for the nation and its people? Uh, like, you know. Five years from now, 10 years from now, 20, 30, down Well, I hope I'm here that long, but let's see it happen. 
But we are uh, fortunate that we also now have a casino that's in the North Carolina side because South Carolina won't allow us to have gaming or class three gaming because we agreed to that in our settlement, never visualizing that, you know, hey, we could. And there's construction going on to where eventually they'll actually have a hotel there and a restaurant of their own. So that's going to help our future. But I don't want us to just fully depend on any revenues that that comes from because we still, like I say, we still have our culture, the pottery, our language, our stories that must continue for us to remain being Catawba. I tell our, our young kids, you know, you just want, 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 right? That is, we are the people of the Westerway Riverbank. And to stand tall. All right, y'all, we went a little long today, so I'll spare you the whole monologue. But I would like to say thanks to Sharon Simmers-Norton, Stephen Criswell, Alex Osborne, and Becky Garris for joining us on today's podcast. Already seen Resurgence and Renaissance and want to learn more about Catawba culture and art? Plan a visit to Lancaster to check out the Native American Studies Center. While you're there, be sure to stop by the Catawba Reservation in Rock Hill, where you can find the Catawba Cultural Center. You'll be glad you did. Till next time. You've been listening to Binder, a production of the Columbia Museum of Art. Today's episode was hosted, edited, and produced by me, Drew Barron. Special assistance from Joelle Ryan Cook. To learn more about CMA exhibitions and programs, visit our website, www.columbiamuseum.org.